Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for December 22nd, 2017. I'm Brian Cardow, happy to welcome you to the Daily Journal's weekly podcast, considering salient appellate and constitutional law questions. This week, we're joined by Rachel Brass, a partner with Gibson Dunn and an amicus in one of the U.S. Supreme Court's most recent set of cert grants. That case is China Agritech v. Resch an appeal arising from the Ninth Circuit, and one with major ramifications for class action procedure, as it tests whether a long-standing doctrine that tolls class members' claims while a court weighs class certification allows those members to bring subsequent class actions, after the initial one fails, outside of the relevant statute of limitations period. The Ninth Circuit ruled that the doctrine does so allow, but Ms. Brass, who worked at the Namicus for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, contends the doctrine is not so broad, and that the Ninth Circuit's interpretation unfairly makes class action defendants vulnerable to potentially interminable successive class claims. But before hearing from Rachel, let's get to our opening briefs. California appellate courts had something of a year-end clearance this week in issuing a number of rulings. Notable among them was a Thursday ruling in a widely followed and heavily briefed California Supreme Court pharmaceutical tort case in which plaintiffs sued drug maker Novartis Pharmaceuticals on a failure-to-warn theory. Alleging defective labels on Novartis's name brand asthma medication led to the plaintiff's autism. That despite the fact that the drug ingested by the plaintiff's mother while she was pregnant with the plaintiff's was a generic version of the drug not produced by Novartis, and also at a time after Novartis had sold its stake in the name brand drug. Last year, the 4th District reinstated the plaintiff's suit, which had been dismissed without leave at trial, and the State High Court Thursday, split 4-3, affirmed. The majority finding that because generic drug warning labels must follow to the letter their related brand name drugs label, and because it was foreseeable Novartis's successor in interest to the drug wouldn't update the allegedly defective label, a failure to warn claim could sufficiently be pled. The minority, comprising the Chief Justice plus Justices Corrigan and Kruger, agreed that brand name manufacturers could be liable for damages caused by generic versions of their drugs, but diverged with the majority on the question of whether that potential liability sustains after a brand name manufacturer no longer makes or sells the drug in question. Earlier in the week, the 4th District published a case in which it affirmed terminating sanctions. In a case involving environmental law plaintiff, Corey Briggs's challenge to the development of a Walmart in the city of Waldemar near Lake Elsinore. The suit was brought nominally by Creed 21, though as reported by the Daily Journal's Megan Kunip this week, the plaintiff is thought by some to be one of many shell corporations Mr. Briggs uses in habitual land use challenges. At the trial court, Briggs failed to respond to motion to compel deposition of Creed 21's person most qualified. And the trial court, after denying motions for relief, argued by the plaintiff eventually issued terminating sanctions for discovery abuse. Importantly, and contrary to Briggs' contention, the 4th District said terminating sanctions do not require bad faith on the part of the uncooperative party. Rather, they may be issued where a totality of the circumstances suggests they are appropriate. So in your next motion for discovery sanctions, this case, Creed 21 vs. City of Waldemar, might be a good one to drop in there. Finally, in the Ninth Circuit, prosecutorial abuses were called out as a censorious panel reversed first-degree murder convictions, while quoting Justice Brandeis' warning that the greatest dangers to liberty lurk in the insidious encroachment by men of zeal, well-meaning but without understanding. In the case where the defendant was charged with the killing of two of his co-workers at a U.S. Coast Guard station in Alaska, the government moved multiple times, eventually successfully, to disqualify a second appointed federal defender, notwithstanding very limited resources at the primary defender's disposal, something the panel called an improper insertion by the prosecution into a matter exclusively within the province of the judiciary. 
though the panel did not reverse on those grounds, it admonished the government to, in the future, tend to its own knitting. The grounds for reversal came on the government's use of criminal profile testimony as substantive evidence of guilt. In their case in chief, prosecutors presented expert testimony as to the characteristics typical of workplace shooters, plainly setting up jurors to compare such a character profile to the defendant's character testified to by lay witnesses and to look for a fit between the two. The panel deemed this a pretty flagrant violation of federal rules of evidence, reminding the parties of Chief Justice Roberts' words from a case last term that our law punishes people for what they do, not who they are. Recently rounding out its October term 2017 docket, the Supreme Court added a couple of appeals from the Ninth Circuit, one that stands to meaningfully impact the future of class action litigation. Rachel Brass is from Gibson Dunn in San Francisco, where she's a partner and is an amicus taking the position that SCOTUS ought to reverse the Ninth Circuit. She's here to explain why. Rachel, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so pleased to be here. This case has uh, some some pretty important ramifications bearing on the, the procedure of class actions and um, statutes of limitation bearing bearing upon them. Maybe at the start, we could just refresh folks' memories as to the rule that's uh, central in this case. It was announced in a 1974 decision familiarly known as uh, American Pipe. Um, what, what did the rule that case created um, regarding class actions and statutes of limitations say, and, and how does that rule work? So in American Pipe, which, as you said, is a 1974 decision, the Supreme Court announced a principle of equitable tolling for members of a class action, and it held that individual claims are tolled during dependency of a class action uh, for any individual members who make timely motions to intervene after the court found the suit inappropriate for class action status. And in other words, that means if you're a member of a class action, your obligation to file an individual claim is told until such time as the court finds the case inappropriate for class action status. In 1983, the court clarified that rule and extended it not only to people who intervene in the original class action, but also who file separate individual actions. And that rule remains the same today, uh, class members' statute of limitations to pursue individual actions are told until and there is an adverse decision on class action status. Okay, so so um, members of the class, or even folks that, that were not actually members of the class, but uh, but but could have been that the rule applies to to them as well. Then that's right. It applies to sort of putative members of a class. So you know, from the time a, cl- a complaint is filed that asserts claims on behalf of absent persons, uh, you know, through either the time where a motion for class certification is denied, or if class certification is initially granted, until such time as it is decertified or you know reversed on appeal, and at that point when it becomes clear that the suit is inappropriate for class action status, then then anyone who is encompassed within the classes alleged in that original suit, uh, they need to uh, seek individual relief. Great. Um, maybe just one more thing on that rule. What uh, was the, the policy reason behind this uh, judge-made, the court-made doctrine, um, as best you, you could say? I know, and we'll get to this a, a bit later, that uh, in, in your amicus filing, you say the, the court might be uh, do well to reconsider the the American Pipe Rule, but what was the the, the thinking behind 
um, tolling statutes of limitation for um, class members or, or putative class members? So in my view, the primary concern of the court was one of efficiency. And as the court itself said in American Pipe, it was trying to strike a balance between that efficiency interest, which Rule 23 and class actions promote, and what it called a competing but equally important interest, which is the one of statutes of limitations. Uh, because the efficiency would have been undermined if everyone were required to file protective motions to intervene or to join in the event a class was later found unsuitable, the court found that that decision could be delayed uh, until there were a decision on the, on the class certification question. Um, but I think it's important to think about what Justice Blackman wrote in concurring in American Pipe, where he spoke to the importance of that balance in the court's decision. Um, as he framed it, the decision must not be regarded as encouragement to lawyers in a case of this kind to frame their pleadings as a class action intentionally to attract and save members of the purported class who have slept on their rights. And he encouraged district courts to try and prevent that type of abuse. So it's always very important that it be a balance between the efficiency enhancing purposes of class actions, but not a complete walking away from congressionally established statutes of limitations. Okay. Uh, then before maybe, uh, framing the, the question here that will uh, further refine that that balance, um, tell me about the parties and the uh, the procedure so far here. So who is who is China Agritech and the other various defendants, and, and why are they being sued by this uh, group of plaintiffs? And um, of course, is central to this case in our, in our conversation. Uh, this is not the first class suit brought against these defendants based on the same underlying events, right? That's correct. So backing up, uh, China Agritech is a company that makes and sells. Uh, various types of fertilizers and related agricultural products. And it was sued first in 2011 by a group of plaintiffs under the Securities Exchange Act for fraud and other uh, wrongdoing in the securities context. Uh, that is not the case that's before the court. But in that case, it was filed as a class action. Class certification was sought and denied. There was an appeal under Rule 23F, and the denial of class certification was affirmed. And the individual plaintiffs there settled. And then a year later, in 2012, another almost identical suit was filed, and class certification was sought and denied, and the case was dismissed with prejudice. And then we get to the actual claimants in the case that's now before the court. Uh, they were those absent class members we were talking about in each of those first two cases. And they filed a third putative class action in 2014, asserting the same securities claims about the same events as the two failed actions. So then that presents to the, the court the question of whether um, that American pipe rule would uh, preclude their that successive filing that that uh, the class action sought here, right? Um, now the Ninth Circuit held that the the rule in American Pipe would would allow for this this most recent suit and and, and told the relevant statute of limitations um, for the plaintiffs. What uh, what was the reasoning in the Ninth Circuit's uh, ruling? That's right. Uh, the Ninth Circuit did in the decision below extend class action tolling 
beyond that first denial of class certification to allow successive class actions and found claims that otherwise would have been time barred to therefore be timely. And in finding that American Pipe could be so extended, the court reasoned that the question of stacking is not one of statute of limitations, but one that is better analyzed through the rubric of claim preclusion and comedy. The panel held and acknowledged um, that an earlier Ninth Circuit decision had found that stacked class actions were inappropriate as a matter of statute of limitations, that they upset the balance established in American pipe uh, and, and sort of what came to be known as the anti-stacking rule. You couldn't stack one class action atop the other to indefinitely toll or extend the statute of limitations. But the panel below said that in an on-bank decision in 2000, in a case called Catholic Social Services, the on-bank Ninth Circuit had revisited that rule and said that questions about anti-stacking are not appropriately considered through a statute of limitations framework, but instead through questions of claim preclusion. And the panel below found, you know, not only was that the law of the circuit, but that three recent Supreme Court decisions, Shady Grove, Smith, and Tyson's, had for different reasons reconfirmed the propriety of that rule and of not thinking about this through a traditional statute of limitations lens. And, and I can explain those, the interplay of those three decisions in the Ninth Circuit rule if you'd like. Sure. Yeah, that'd be great. Well, first, the court looked at the decision in Shady Grove, uh, which you may remember is a plurality decision that addresses the interplay between Rule 23 and federal courts and class actions and state statutes that preclude pursuing certain remedies on a class action basis. And it found that in federal court, the question of class actions and class certification is determined exclusively through Rule 23, not through state substantive or procedural law. And here, the court found that that decision means that on questions of class certification and the ability to seek relief on a class action basis, you're not to look at laws, including laws like statute of limitations. The court's analysis is confined simply to the question of Rule 23. Now, the court also looked at Smith v. Bayer, which is a question about the interplay of claims preclusion for people who were in a class uh, as absent class members, a putative class that was not certified. And in Smith versus Bayer, the court held that absent persons are not parties to a class action and therefore cannot be bound by determinations in that case. And here, the Ninth Circuit meant uh, that, that that means you have to look at preclusion analysis, not just assume that a class certification in an earlier action binds the litigants in a subsequent class action uh, on the same claims and for the same relief. And third, the court said that we look at Tyson's, uh, a recent decision about the standards of predominance and the evaluation of certain types of evidence. And there the court spoke to the effect of the Rules Enabling Act. And in the Ninth Circuit's view, the court said that what Tyson's means in looking at the Rules Enabling Act is that you can't limit class actions and the relief available in class actions 
where there would be no limit on the same relief if it were sought in an individual claim. And so here, in the Ninth Circuit's view, that would mean that an, if an individual has a timely individual claim, then under the Rules Enabling Act, they must also be able to timely assert a claim on behalf of absent persons. We'll get into um, the various reasons here in a moment why uh, you think that that Ninth Circuit reasoning wasn't uh, quite quite right. But before we do it, we should flag this um, this question has divided the circuit courts, right? And it's a, a pretty deep circuit, but there have been a few decisions um, from various circuits on, on either side. Is that right? That's right. Some would say until 2015, uh, the, <laughs> the, the Ninth Circuit seems here to have said perhaps longer back than that. But until recently, the circuit courts were fairly aligned on this question and disallowed tolling of these stat class actions in some or all circumstances. But the first big shift in that happened in the Sixth Circuit in 2015 in a decision called Phipps versus Walmart Stores, Inc., which is follow-on litigation from the Supreme Court's reversal of class certification in the nationwide Walmart versus Duke's Title VII case. Uh, there, the court found that uh, these Supreme Court decisions, although not Tyson's as the Sixth Circuit decision uh, predated Tyson's, undermined the anti-stacking rule and meant that the only limits on sequential class actions are these preclusion and comedy principles. That has since been followed by the Ninth Circuit. Uh, by contrast, the majority of other circuits, including all to have looked at this question, uh, the Third Circuit in a decision by uh, Justice Alito when he was uh, a judge on the Third Circuit, the Second Circuit, the Eleventh Circuit, uh, the Fifth Circuit, have all aligned in following the anti-stacking rule. And the Seventh Circuit has been a bit of an outlier until very recently, uh, just last month. Uh, the Seventh Circuit, in a decision called Sawyer, which was decided before Smith versus Bayer, had similarly looked at these questions um, in terms of preclusion. But in a decision issued in mid-November, the Seventh Circuit seems to have walked back from that decision and returned to following the other anti-stacking decisions while also reiterating, uh, I think, sort of the now non-controversial holding of Smith versus Bayer, which is that uh, non-parties cannot be bound by decisions in a, in a class action, absent class members, that is. So maybe we can get in, into the amicus filing that, that you worked on um, submitted um, on behalf of the, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, arguing that the, the Ninth Circuit got this one wrong, uh, that that should be reversed. Um, maybe getting to maybe the, the broadest kind of overarching concern that runs through the brief seems to be uh, sort of the, the, the policy consideration that it's it's just not really fair to have defendants staring down the barrel of um, potentially an indefinite number of, of class actions, um, as here this is the, the third one um, arising from the same underlying fact pattern. Um, you argue that, that that puts a a good bit of pressure on defendants to, to settle in instances they, they might not, knowing that um, if a class is decertified and then the class can just be, be brought again, um, that they, they would really have a hard time escaping litigation. Um, could you just uh, kind of spin out that concern a, a bit further for me? And I suppose, uh, r relatedly, why don't you think 
the way the Ninth Circuit does that, um, ideas like preclusion or, or principles of comedy um, wouldn't uh, kind of prevent that sort of runaway serial litigation. Well, it, I think you actually phrased the settlement concern exactly right. And so I would just sort of, you know, use an analogy that I think is particularly true under the fact pattern in the Sixth Circuit decision, where the Sixth Circuit said, well, Dukes was a, a, a nationwide class, and this is a smaller subset, a couple states in the nationwide class. And so, you know, Questions of preclusion and comedy probably don't apply there. It's a different claim. We're going to, we, we don't think there's an intention, uh, to prevent these stacked claims and we're going to allow the case to go forward. And I think, you know, both in terms of a case like the China Agritech case where you have the exact same claims pursued Syrianum with the hope that your 11th bite of the apple is the one that finally tastes good. Or if you're like in the Sixth Circuit and it's, you know, Russian nesting dolls where the case just gets smaller and smaller until perhaps you can establish uh, commonality and predominance and the other requirements of class cert. You know, here you had one case uh, in China Agritech uh, rejected on one uh, Rule 23 rule, the second was rejected on the second Rule 23 basis. And it just means that there are sort of infinite rights to bring litigation and there is no possibility of finality or repose through the setting aside of the statute of limitations. And so I think, you know, one that drives the settlement concern that you were talking about, that if you want certainty, you are forced into the corner of only obtaining it through settlement um, because, you know, for China Agritech, they defeated class certification. The appellate court affirmed for, for Walmart in the Sixth Circuit. Uh, the Supreme Court itself said this case can't proceed on a class basis. Um, but what we've seen in practice is new lawsuits springing up again and again and again, you know, like the proverbial phoenix. And that I think distorts that balance that the Supreme Court was seeking in American Pipe. It, it elevates the efficiency enhancing purposes of Rule 23 over the congressional directive. If you can't get for a statute of limitations, I should say, the congressional directive of statute of limitations. If you can't get finality through the way Congress intended, your hands are tied where you can only get it through settlement. You obviously can't get it through defeat, defeating class certification. And I think that's part of why I feel less sanguine about the Ninth Circuit focus on preclusion and comedy. But I'm also troubled that it really does allow the court to just cast aside Congress's determination that litigation at some point must end and really holds that in the class action context, statutes of limitation are functionally meaningless. Uh, and, and I just think that's inconsistent with the doctrine of American pipe itself and the fundamental balance that it was seeking to achieve. Okay. Um, now, a, a more uh, fine, specific argument is that you argue that the, the American pipe rule constitutes um, equitable tolling as opposed to uh, it being something sort of inherent in, in statute or in, in Rule 23, why, uh, why is that important and how does that bear on, on the outcome in, in your view? Well, I think that's important for a couple of reasons. 
first, I think it's it's important to note that American pipe is treated as an equitable doctrine, but it really does depart from the traditional application of such doctrines in that it creates a blanket court-created tolling rule. Usually in equitable tolling, we are looking at the equities. Um, here, the only sort of equity is the efficiency-enhancing purpose. But we don't ask, you know, was absent class member A, you know, actually aware of the lawsuit and, and waiting for the class action resolution, uh, or, or were they wholly unaware of it? We, we don't ask those similar type of equitable questions that we would in the, in the tolling context specifically. But it is equitable in that it is a court-created fairness doctrine. And that is particularly important in light of the Supreme Court's recent jurisprudence regarding the operation of statute of limitations as they interplay with those equitable tolling doctrines. Uh, the court has been narrowly circumscribing equitable tolling doctrines from Gabelli to Petrella, and, and onward. And if you think about it, you know, let's take Petrella. Um, that's the case where the court found that the, the latches doctrine didn't apply in certain intellectual property cases, a, a decision that has since been extended uh, to the patent context. And so there we know that the court finds that sort of back-end tolling doctrines, these equitable doctrines like latches, they don't apply. What applies is the congressional statute of limitations. Well, if that's kind of true on the back end, then it must be true on the front end as well, or you're using equitable doctrines to favor plaintiffs and punish defendants in a way that I think is contrary to the purposes of equity itself. You, you foreshadowed it a bit a, a couple of moments ago talking about how uh, the Ninth Circuit's rule allowing class actions like like this one here, the third in, in a line on the same underlying event, um, in in the face of statutes of limitation, brings up some some separa- separation of, of powers concerns. Um, and you make this argument um, sort of couched in the context or considering some recent Supreme Court case law suggesting that such considerations are, are, are salient at the moment. Could you unpack that a bit more for me? Yeah. So I think this question is really brought out if you look at the question that the Supreme Court has actually granted for review, which is whether the role of American Pipe and Construction Company versus Utah tolls the statute of limitations to permit a previously absent class member to bring a subsequent class action outside the applicable limitations period. And that is fundamentally a question about who gets to decide when claims are timely. Because here we know it is outside the limitations period. It is beyond the line that Congress has drawn. And in recent decisions, the court has emphasized that it is not the role of the court to jettison Congress's judgment on the timeliness of lawsuits. Now, in some ways, that's already exactly what American pipe tolling does. And so the question here is, sort of assuming that courts can jettison timeliness once through the blanket tolling that American Pipe provides, can they do so indefinitely? You know, can courts just override that congressional judgment? Or at some point, must the balance tip back to legislative determinations about the value of finality and repose? And I think what you have seen 
um, particularly in the last five, seven years, is that in a variety of contexts, uh, the court sort of from all, all sides has said that statutes of limitations and timeliness are in the natural at least in the in the majority of instances, sort of outside these individualized equitable exceptions, a congressional determination, not a judicial determination. Okay. Um. One one other question about arguments. Uh, you mentioned the the Rules Enabling Act as a, a piece of the Ninth Circuit's uh, ruling supporting their their conclusion that this case can go forward. Um. But you argue that the that that act um, suggests. The opposite. Um, what what was your argument as to that statute? Um, as I understand it, you, and you as you explained it, um, it's that individual claims and class claims should be um, treated similarly, or folks trying to bring them should be treated similarly. Why why does that uh, rule, as you say, um, suggest re- reversal here? So just as sort of a reminder, uh, the Rules Enabling Act is a fairly tidy little statute that governs the interplay between court-created procedure and congressionally mandated law. And so it says, you know, in the first part, that the Supreme Court has the power to prescribe general rules of practice and procedure and evidence for the U.S. federal court. And then it goes on to say, and here I'll quote, that such rules shall not abridge, enlarge, or modify any substantive right. All laws in conflict with such rules shall be of no further force or effect after such rules have taken effect, close quote. And so what that means, in short, is that you can't elevate a procedural rule over a substantive right. And I think here, you know, uh, we on behalf of the chamber and uh, petitioners fundamentally disagree with what the Ninth Circuit held the Rules Enabling Act provides. So I said the new Ninth Circuit held that Tyson said where you have an individual cause of action, nothing can circumscribe your ability to pursue the Rule 23 class action procedure. Um, but that, I would say, is the elevation of a procedural mechanism, Rule 23, over the substantive right. Here, that substantive right is the right of repose and the operation of the statute of limitations. Uh, statute of limitations inevitably reflect Congress's value judgment concerning when the interests in favor of protecting valid claims are outweighed by the interests in prohibiting the litigation of stale ones. And the courts have held for decades that those shouldn't be disregarded vaguely or out of sympathy. Um, and again, we've talked about it, it was emphasized in American Pipe itself. And if you allow the fact that a claim was filed under Rule 23 to perpetually extend the statute of limitations for anyone encompassed within the absent class of that lawsuit, you have elevated the procedural mechanism of Rule 23 over the congressional determination of statutes of limitations. So, you know, um, maybe just to present a, a counter-argument or two, I, I know one of the, the ones that, that I've seen is that, you know, if you, even if you concede that um, it seems problematic or maybe unfair that um, defendants could be looking down the barrel of just several class actions. Um, on the other hand, if you try and look for, you know, a legal or, or policy basis 
upon um, which to base a ruling that you know individual class members' claims are told by American Pipe and they survive and they can be brought um, outside of the limitations period. But individual class members can't aggregate those claims, which are all viable individually, but um, if the American Pipe rule doesn't apply to subsequent class actions, they're not viable when they put them together. I guess what is the, the policy or, or legal basis for, for drawing that distinction? It seems one kind of argument is that it's a, diff a difficult distinction to draw. Um, how you, do you respond to that argument? And do you, do you think that's one of the stronger counterarguments? What, what, what are some other um, arguments that you uh, think it might have some, some colorability on, on the other side here? Yeah, well, I think the argument that you just posited is the argument that um, you know, the Rush plaintiffs uh, will be making in the Ninth Circuit and that both the Ninth, Sixth and Ninth Circuits found uh, you know, ground for in Smith and Shady Grove, uh, that insofar as Rule 23 does not create a substantive right, there is no basis to differentiate between claims pursued on an individual class or representative basis. Uh, and I do think, you know, that will be their primary argument on the merits. The biggest problem I see with it is footnote 10 of Smith itself, which is the only part that actually speaks to tolling, limits follow on told actions to individual actions. Um, whether the court was right to adopt that line in American Pipe, Cronkork, and Smith, the only three decisions that speak to the specific issue, it is the line they drew in creating a judicially created exception to statutes of limitations. And I think the problem with the broader reach is if you allow it to extend to future class actions, that automatically creates the infinite tolling problem we discussed. Because every absent person in that individual, in that, you know, second future class action then has their statutes of limitations tolled for the pendency of the litigation. And then if another claim is filed, everyone has their statutes of limitations told again. And and that, just as we've been talking about, eviscerates statutes of limitations of any meaning, so long as Rule 23 is invoked. And uh, th that is fundamentally not line drawing. It's the absence of lines at all. One argument, I should sorry. say... Um, both the Ninth Circuit and the Sixth Circuit also expressed concerns about the efficiency-preserving benefits of class actions, and I do expect we'll see more of that in the merits briefing as well. One argument your brief um, does, does not make but, but hints at is that perhaps um, the American pipe rule altogether should be reconsidered or perhaps done away with, um, which would uh, sort of render that line drawing system we were just talking about, uh, moot if in individual claims also weren't weren't preserved. Um, why uh, th th this rule is a uh, uh, one of pretty long long standing? What uh, what is your concern with it? Um, why do you think it, it perhaps should be reconsidered? Yeah. So I think if the court were to hear the American Pipe question today in the first instance on a blank slate. Based on the decisions that have come since, it's hard to see it coming out the same way for all the reasons we've been talking about today. And so in the appropriate case, you know, one presenting the issue squarely, I do think the court should consider um, 
whether it's appropriate to legislate from the bench and in elevating class actions in this way over statutes of limitations. Uh, I think there are good reasons why expectations of finality and repose, if you're a defendant, should be no different whether someone pursues a claim against you as an individual claim or pursues the claim as a class action. Uh, per- perhaps we would have more vigor in who our class representatives were, in whether they were typical, bringing common claims, bringing representative actions, you know, less shoot for the moon class action litigation and more circumscribed limited class actions if you knew it was your one shot. Um, but, but that sort of said, I think what's important here is that it is at best a shaky rule that should be confined to the corners that have long been recognized, uh, including by the Supreme Court in the Smith decision in footnote 10 most recently. And it should not be further extended as the Ninth Circuit did here and the Circuit did before it. Yeah, obviously, sort of grants tend to suggest a reversal more, more often than not, but are there any other tea leaves here that we can read from, say, recent uh, Supreme Court rulings? I know just last year, uh, California's public employee retirement system was involved in a case involving securities and statutes of limitation and um, statutes of, I'm sorry, statutes of repose. Um, and the, the court found um, that uh, claims could not be told past um, those statutes of repose. Is that sort of a, a preview for what we might, might see here? What do you think... Um, might be the direction of of this case. Yeah, I I do think that that case poses a significant problem. Uh, It's hard to reconcile that decision with what the Ninth Circuit did here. And uh, at at least at the cert petition stage, the the response uh, to that uh, decision is very much an attempt to confine it to its facts. Um, I'm not sure that when you read that decision, but also when you place it within the broader trend of Gabelli and CTS Corp and SCH Hygiene and Petrella, that all of those decisions collectively point to a trend in how the court is thinking about statute of limitations questions. I guess maybe just one more last one, just to finally wrap up, uh, if you um, have, a, have a sense what how, how how big of an impact could the ruling have? Say if it's a reversal on how class actions are are litigated, or the mindsets of plaintiffs or defense um, either litigants or or uh, attorneys. It it's always hard to know how any individual uh, litigant or defendant uh, will react to. Uh, a decision by the court, and I'm sure we can all point to many predictions uh, over the past decades about what a case would or wouldn't mean for the law that have not borne out uh, in practice or in lower court implementation. But I would be hopeful that what we would see here as a result uh, is more careful thinking and more closely tailored class action claims sort of at the outset. Uh, that if you, as I said, if if you knew that that if you lost your um, if if certainty again were restored and you knew that once you filed a class action lawsuit that absent class members uh, rights could depend on the outcome 
as a whole if American Pipe is reversed, or at least that individual litigants thereafter would need to file their own claims or intervene and could not, you know, simply sit passively sleeping on their rights uh, in perpetuity in the hopes of a payday, uh, that that would refine uh, the types of cases that we're seeing being litigated. Okay, uh, well, well, we'll wait and see uh, whether uh, that result comes to pass here in uh, a busy October term 2017. For now, Rachel Brass, uh, Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher in San Francisco, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. And with that, our show for December 22nd is complete. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you and yours have or are having or have had a fantastic Christmas and holiday season. And we at the Daily Journal and Weekly Appellate Report look forward to talking to you in the new year.